So uh, there was a, a popular show on MTV a couple years back. Uh, it was called uh, Pit My Ride. Uh, excuse the term. <laughs> I think you think you can handle that. But uh, regardless of the term, the, the whole point of the, the show was people would bring their car. Exhibit, who's a rapper, popular back then, would show up to people who had these cars and, and say, hey, you, you know, we're going to pip your ride. Bring them to this place called West Coast Customs. And the team there would accessorize the car. Uh, so they would, I mean, all the bells and whistles. So we're talking, of course, amazing audio system, new paint job, new rims, uh, monitors everywhere. And sometimes they do the crazy stuff. I saw one show where they put like a, a pool table in the back of a pickup truck. I don't know why. <laughs> but like it was literally a pool table in the bed of the pickup truck. Another one, they had like a chandelier hanging in the back and all this other stuff. So they, all these different things they would, they would put. And obviously, before getting customized, these cars looked pretty ratchet. I mean, they were just terrible, right? But after getting customized in this way, um, these cars looked amazing, like just spectacular. Now, one thing that was interesting that never happened in the show, they never just got rid of the car, right? <laughs> this car is bad, let's just give you a new car, which is really what they should have done. <laughs> it's a terrible car, here's a brand new car. That's really what it should have done. Um, no matter how bad the condition of the car was, they, they would customize it. And I was reading some behind the scenes. It's interesting, they were customizing these cars. They weren't necessarily fully repairing these cars. There's a number of times where like the windows weren't going down or the AC wasn't working. But that wasn't the point of the show, to fix like these basic things. <laughs> it was to customize the car. And so people would have all these accessories, um, all these different toys and extras, in order to continue to enjoy this car that in some cases didn't work very well in the basic ways that it should work, but it had all the stuff around it, all these accessories so they continue to be able to drive the car that they have. You know, as thinking about this as, as a, a metaphor for what I would suggest how we live our lives, how we approach our lives. So you have your life, and if you think about it, what we're always doing is we're, we're customizing it. We're adding accessories to it. We're doing things that help us accomplish what we want and how we want it. Right? These are, and in some ways, there's very little ways we're doing that. We have literal accessories. You have a cell phone, right? The cell phone is there to communicate in the ways that you want to communicate, to give you the information that you want when you want it. Uh, we have clothes, right, to look the way that we want the ways that we've decided that we want. We, we have those very little things, but then even just more broadly, I mean, think just relationally. So many of the ways in which we approach our friendships, boyfriend, girlfriends, families, we approach the relationship around us to customize our lives. Here's the life I want to live, and I want these relationships to fit in the slots that they should fit so I can continue to live the life I want, be the person that I think I should be, accomplish the things I want to accomplish. And I want these relationships these accessories to be able to accomplish those things. Uh, think of even many people's spiritual beliefs, their, your, people's belief systems. They're essentially accessories. We believe the things that we believe. We have the religions that we have in order to help us feel comfortable, to feel good, to be challenged, but not challenged too hard. Right? Challenged in only the ways, again, that we've decided we want to go. And be the ways that we want to be. And go the directions that we want to go. And all this... Again, what we're doing is, is we're customizing things. We're, we're attaching things to our lives in order to be in accordance with what we want, what we desire. And it's not to say that like, people don't change their lives. I'm not saying people never are interested in changing their lives. We change them, but we change them based on a fundamental trust that I know what's best for me. I know what I want. I know what I want to accomplish. 
And we do that with our lives, and certainly we do that with God. Where God then, I mean, a lot of people believe in God. I, I, I would imagine most of you have some semblance, some belief in God, and some, somewhere on the spectrum. A lot of people believe in God, but we believe in God in a way that makes him an accessory, a customization option to your life. We come to God not to totally submit to his direction, but for help to go in the direction we want to go, to accomplish the things we want to accomplish. Here's my life, God, but no, like you can't. I know you're telling me I need a brand new life. No, I want the life I got. <laughs> now you come in and help me do what I want to do. This is what we want to think about this morning. This idea of God being the accessor to, to your life as opposed to being the God of your life. And what we want to see this morning, when we approach God this way, when God is not God of your life, but he's the accessory of your life, well, the answer that we're going to see is that don't work. God is the accessory to no one. He will not be customized to anyone's life. Uh, what we want to see is the result of that, and then maybe then begin to think about what it means really then for God to be God's, to be the God of our life. So uh, let's look at this. We're in 1 Samuel chapter 4, and the passage begins with this big battle between Israel and Israel. One of their longtime enemies, the Philistines, they lose, they lose badly. Israelite soldiers get back to the camp, and the leaders of Israel, the elders of Israel, they say this, verse 3, why has the Lord defeated us today before the Philistines? So the elders of Israel know that it's God who's defeated them. And they, 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 or the reason they lost is because of something related to God. And so good so far. They, they know their history. Whatever happens to them is in connection to the God they serve, to the Lord God. And, and so what are they going to do? Well, it's interesting here. They don't go and ask God, so what happened? Why did this happen? Uh, this is what they've done in the past. And, and they could have easily done that. We began this passage, the first verse of the chapter mentions uh, that Samuel, the word of the Lord, the word of Samuel came to all Israel. So Samuel's already been recognized as a prophet. In the past, go to the prophet or go to the leader, a Moses, a Joshua, inquire of the Lord. That, that's what they should have done. They understand that this is related to God, but instead of doing that, notice what they do. Let us bring the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord here from Shiloh, that it may come among us and save us from the power of our enemies. So the Ark, for those of you who are not familiar with this, the Ark of the Covenant, this is basically like a gold-covered box. Inside of it were stone tablets on which were written the law of God that they were given at Mount Sinai. So it's really a pretty simple object. It has gold around it, but extremely simple compared to some of the other pagan nations that are around them. And that object was really just there as a kind of this object lesson, a constant reminder of God's presence with them. That's what it represented. A, a reminder that Israel has what is called a covenant with God. In other words, a special committed relationship. Uh, they're, almost, they're married to God in a sense. Israel and God in a committed, special relationship with one another that required them to follow and listen to God. I mean, that's what's interesting here is that they had a box with words from God inside of it. If you look at the other nations around them, they had statues. And you do things in front of these statues. Like you're really trying to manipulate the gods to do the things that you want to do. Israel did not have that. When they think of God and they think of the temple where they come to bring worship, what God has them think of is, here's the words I've given you. Listen to them. Follow them. Listen and trust me. That's what the ark was meant to instill in them. But that's not what happens here, is it? They bring the ark out because they've already decided what they want. They bring the ark out because they've said, look, we deserve to win. And it always happens when we bring this ark out. God's going to make this happen. That's how they're approaching God. 
here's what we want. We're customizing God to accomplish the things that we want. I mean, really what you got is like the Israelite version of Aladdin here, isn't it? I mean, God is the genie. The ark is the lamp. They expect, they bring the ark out, and God's going to come out and, you know, saying, you know, you ain't got a friend like me, right? Something like that. And poof, the Philistines are done. That's what they're expecting. That's what genies do. They aren't asking God about what happened, why it happened, and then responding based on what God says to them. It's not what's happening here. They've decided already, we need to win, and God needs to make that happen. We know what we want. I know how I want to act. I know how I want to be. And God, of course you're in it. Of course you're for it. One person put it this way. They were more interested in success, not repentance. This is God as an accessory to your life as opposed to God being the God of your life. There's a big difference between the two. Let's continue on here. Verse 4. So the people sent to Shiloh. And brought from there the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord of Hosts, who is enthroned on the cherubim. And the two sons of Eli, Hophni and Phinehas, were there with the Ark of the Covenant of God. As soon as the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord came to the camp, all Israel gave a mighty shout so that the earth resounded. And there's great irony here, isn't there? The Ark is in the camp. Here's this reminder. We follow God. God gives us words. We listen to them. We obey them. We trust him and follow him. Here it is right in front of them. But instead... They're bringing it, already saying, here's what we want. And God is here to make that happen. Brandon preached last Sunday about this time period, how the, sort of the tagline for this time period in Israel's history was, everyone did what was right in their own eyes. And we're seeing it. Here's what's right in our eyes. And everything around them is going to accomplish that, including the God they serve. So there's irony here, but there's also a lot of hypocrisy. Think about the guys who are bringing the ark there. Uh, it's um, Hophni and Phinehas. We know from chapters 2 and 3, these were spiritually abusive men, immoral men. And we also know from chapters 2 and 3, everyone in Israel knew about it. Eli, his, their father, talks to them in chapter 2 and says, you know, everyone knows about this. He says, there's no good report that I hear about you guys. It's all over. So everyone knows what kind of bad dudes these guys are. And they let them bring the ark in. They're basically ignoring it, aren't they? They're ignoring it. They're ignoring it because why? We want to win. And sure, yeah, we're going to associate with some bad people, but it's more important that we win. We want to win. God's got to help us. They're going to bring the box that makes God help us. Genie's lamp. So the Philistines hear Israel shoutings, and they say this, verse 6. What does this great shouting in the camp of the Hebrews mean? And when they learned that the ark of the Lord had come to the camp, the Philistines were afraid, for they said, a God has come into the camp. And they said, woe to us, for nothing like this has happened before. Woe to us, who can deliver us from the power of these mighty gods? These are the gods who struck the Egyptians with every sort of plague in the wilderness. And it's really interesting. It, it shows the other countries in that area, they, they knew what was up. They knew about Israel's God. They, they heard the news that ha had come to them about what happened in Egypt, the plagues, the Red Sea, all of that. How the Egyptians got struck down, he says, there was every sort of plague, right? So they, they, they knew about this. What's a little side note here that's interesting, though. They, they couldn't help but see this through their pagan context. Notice they refer to the gods of Israel, right? Israel was very clear about serving one god, but, like, their, their context, like, is, they, they almost had no category for it, right? They couldn't help but, but see it through their context. You know, as we often say, everything is contextual, even for pagans, right? <laughs> so pagans even... 
sometimes don't appreciate the context of things. So even them looking in and just thought of this as, oh, it must be gods, right? They had no real concept of Yahweh, the one true God. So they're afraid, they're concerned, but they resolve to fight. Verse 9, take courage and be men, O Philistines, lest you become slaves to the Hebrews as they have been to you. Be men and fight. Normally this is a big mistake. <laughs> this doesn't work. But God is going to be doing something very different here. He's going to be teaching a very painful lesson to Israel. Verse 10, so the Philistines fought, and Israel was defeated, and they fled every man to his home. And there was a very great slaughter, for 30,000 foot soldiers of Israel fell. And the ark of God was captured, and the two sons of Eli, Hophni and Phinehas, died. Israel suffers a huge defeat, like catastrophic. Seven and a half times more people die in this second battle than the first one. And notice, it says the army basically is disbanded. It says there, and they fled every man to his home. That means everyone went back home. They didn't even go back to the camp. The army dissolved. That's how bad of a loss this was. We also see here that Eli's sons die, which is in keeping with what we saw in chapters 2 and chapters 3, a consequence of their spiritual immorality, their abusiveness as spiritual leaders, divine consequence for them. The last thing, and really the worst thing as far as the nation's psyche is concerned, is the ark is captured. Their most sacred possession is in the hands of the enemy, in the hands of pagans, the infidels. God was quite all right with Israel losing, and not just losing, also losing this ark, this sacred possession they had. To make a very clear point, God will not be manipulated, adjusted, or customized to Israel's wants and desires. God is not Israel's accessory. God is Israel's God. Verse 12, a man of Benjamin ran from the battle line and came to Shiloh the same day with his clothes torn with dirt on his head. So this guy, by the way, if you look at the map, this is like 22 miles uphill. I mean, this guy is a good athlete. I mean, he, to get all the way there in one day, probably quite a bit breathless, having dirt on his head is a sign of mourning, obviously devastated by in shock over what happened. Verse 13, when he arrived... Eli was sitting on his seat by the road watching, for his heart trembled for the ark of God. And Eli has been a passive, hypocritical leader, but it does seem he has some basic respect for the word of God. He, he, he knows, like, what's happened here is not good, right? The people grabbing the ark, bringing the battle, I think he has this, that's why he trembled. He knew this was not a good thing. Now, we see here another example of his passiveness. He didn't say anything. He didn't object to it. We have examples in the past uh, of, of leaders from Israel, I and mean, think of like Joshua and Caleb, right? And when they were going to go into the promised land and the people didn't want to go and Joshua and Caleb were like, no, listen, we've got to follow God. We've got to take the promised land. Eli could have been the same way. Listen, we, this is not good. But another example of him being silent, not saying anything as they take the ark. So this description, I think, suggests, though, while he was silent, he still was concerned. He knew enough to know this is a bad thing. And so he asked the messenger, What's going on? Why is this huge uproar? Eli, he's 98, he's blind, so he's got to ask, like, what's going on? Verse 17. He who brought the news answered and said, Israel has fled before the Philistines. There has also been a great defeat among the people. Your two sons also, Hophni and Phinehas, are dead, and the ark of God has been captured. As soon as he mentioned the ark of God, Eli fell over backward from his seat by the side of the gate. His neck was broken and he died, for the man was old and heavy. He had judged Israel 40 years. Mentioned before, Israel, Eli, I mean, he's passive and just in general complicit, I think, with, 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 his, with, his, with his sons. 
this quick detail of him being old and fat implies that not only was he not saying anything about what, these, what his sons were doing, even though he knew it was bad, they were bringing the, the meat that they weren't supposed to bring that was supposed to be sacrificed to God, and he was eating of it, right? That's why he's fat. So we see the consequence for him as well as he dies. And if we come to the end of the story, though, there's another tragic loss. It's the wife of Phineas. She hears the news while she's giving birth. She doesn't make it through childbirth. And after her son is born, before she dies, she names the son Ichabod. Verse 21, she named the son Ichabod, saying, The glory has departed from Israel because the ark of God has been captured, because of her father-in-law and her husband. And she said, the glory has departed from Israel for the ark of God has been captured. Now, it's not uncommon back then for, for people to name their children based on a significant event happening or, or other things uh, that were happening in that person's life at that time. But it's not uncommon. I think, I'm glad we don't still do this. I can only imagine the kind of names people would give their kids every time we have an election. It would be, <laughs> a lot of kids would be walking around with some, some, some very <laughs> strange names given how elections go in our country. That being said, uh, in this case, um, the baby's name, is, it speaks, right, to what's happened, right? The glory has departed from Israel. It's finally recognizing that the God is not with them in the way that, that he was before. Recognizing that this is a significant moment. The glory has departed. Quick note here. Um, we know from other parts of the Bible that it also, it turns out, sometime later the Philistines went into Shiloh and destroyed the temple, the sanctuary, that the, the, the ark was there. It was there. So we, in Psalm 28, Jeremiah 7, 26, 7, chapter 7, chapter 26, it mentions this destruction. It mentions this incident and it adds that, like, the temple, the sanctuary, the, the, whatever temporary, whatever building they had, some temporary building of some sort, where the ark was, got also destroyed. So God had Israel defeated, had the ark taken, but also had the temple, the place where it was destroyed. I mean, God is definitely saying something here, isn't it? Isn't he? These things were extremely important to Israel. The guarantee that God is with them. The guarantee that God has their blessing upon them. And God allows it to go completely away. For God, again, is not the accessory to Israel. He's the God of Israel. So, this lesson that God was giving Israel, um, it's a lesson I think we still need today. It's, it's, and I think it's, it's important to think about it in this way. It's, it is possible for us to claim that God is with us, that God supports us, and for that not actually to be the case. That God is actually not at all with you, not at all supporting you. And I think it's easy for us to look at this in sort of like an out there way, like, you know, those, those people who are like, you know, you see the, 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 the celebrities or the athletes who are like, yeah, God is with us. We're going to win this game. And it's easy to sort of, we here who like know the Bible and stuff, oh, look at those silly people, right? <laughs> or those politicians who, who, who act as if like they're God's anointed. Like those are, in some ways, we're, we're, we, it's easy for us to dismiss. But again, Israel wasn't, like, Israel has been following God for a while. In many ways, like they're, they're the church, right? They, they know the deal. It's interesting. It mentions here in verse 5, the, the ark comes in and there's a mighty shout at I imagine it's like they were, they started singing. I mean, that's normally what they would do. They started praising God. They started doing, you know, our God is an awesome God a hundred times, right? Like that's what that was happening. God is with us. Our God is an awesome God. It's going to happen. We're, we're there. And it's a reminder, isn't it? It's a reminder that we can do all the spiritual things, all the right words and actions, all the church services and the volunteering and all these different things. We can have all 
the stuff around us, assume that God is with us, that God is blessing us, and what this story is telling us, that might not be the case. It might be empty ritual. In fact, it is empty ritual. If we approach God in that way. And the, the reality is, if we're honest, we are naturally bent to making God our accessory. To customizing God to fit according to what we want. Because we're bent towards success. We're bent towards winning, to making sure that things happen that we want to have happen, to be the ways that we want to be. And so we take what God says clearly in the Bible about how we should be, how we should act, and we ignore it, we dismiss it, we make excuses for it, again, so that we can do what we want. And what we see here is great danger in customizing God to your life. Here's the thing. God is not about customizing your life. God is about transforming your life. Transforming your life. There's a big difference between the two. There's a big difference. We pick the customization option because it's not so much that people want to get rid of God. We want God, but we want God to fit in in a way that's clear to us, where we have control. And so I have a life that I'm sure I want to live. I have the family I want to raise. I have the work I want to accomplish. I have the ways in which I want to act and interact in the world, the ways in which I want to talk to people or post things at people or relate to people. I have the things that I want and desire, and I will look for all the ways in which God, in my opinion, is for that, is with that. We are customizing God to a life that we have predetermined for ourselves. The transformation option, we don't choose that one because that's something totally different. It's a new car, isn't it? This idea of a new creation being born again, think about what that means. It means handing your life over to God and God leading you in directions. And the reason we don't pick that often, the reason we're not leaning in those directions is because to have God lead us isn't always clear. To where God is leading us, so he's transforming us, we're not as much in control. And sometimes he's leading us in places that are rocky and unsure. Sometimes there's a bit of fog, and we're like, I don't want to drive into that fog, and God's like, you got to follow me. We don't want that. I want to know where I'm going. I want to be sure about where I'm going. I want to make sure that things happen in the ways that I want to happen. I don't want too much suffering. I don't want that much pain. I don't want to have to adjust the ways I think about myself and the ways that I act. I don't want those things. If God's going to be God, it requires something of us, doesn't it? I mean, really what we're talking about here is to listen to God, to submit to God, is really about trusting and obeying God. Trusting and obeying God. And trusting and obeying God doesn't always feel great. Sometimes it feels great. But other times not so great. Because to submit to God, to trust and obey means sometimes you're pushed in directions you don't want to be pushed. So God is going to push you to be more forgiving to be more patient, and that's uncomfortable. You don't like that, and so you resist. To trust and obey God means being constrained and redirected by him. So how you use your money, how you even think about your sexuality, how you use your job and career, how you think about what's best for your kids, how you decide the marriage that you're going to have, how you decide the career you're going to go in. All those things God will at various times constrain and redirect Trusting, obeying God requires that because it's about God being the God of your life. And that means your wants and desires don't stay in your hands, they go in God's hands. That's not easy. We're naturally resistant to it. So that's why 
So I've been thinking about this. If we're going to trust and obey, I, I think there's a soil that has to come out of it. And it comes out of the soil of humility, confession, and repentance. If you're going to trust and obey God, there's a reason many of us have trouble trusting and obey God because we have not tilled the soil in our lives of humility, confession, and repentance. You say, I want God to work. And guess what? God does work. God does act on our behalf. God does do things. You will see God and know God is with you in accomplishing things. God does come and accomplish things. God doesn't accomplish great things, wonderful things, awesome things, miraculous things in your life. But that comes not by asserting your will on God. It's about submitting your will to God's will. It's about saying God is going to determine my life and not me. And that requires humility. Humility is you saying my identity, my sense of self is not going to be determined by me. I'm willing for God to determine it. I'm going to trust that he's going to determine that. Humility is that recognition that I come not over God, but saying God shape me to how I need to be. It requires confession. It requires admitting that we fall short of what God wants. And not acting as if that doesn't happen or ignoring when that happens or making excuses for it, but saying, I have failed. I have sinned. God, I confess my sin to you. And it requires repentance and saying, God, I've sinned and I'm willing, I'm saying I'm not going to stay in the same place. I'm willing to turn and change because of what you're saying to me, because of what you call me to. See, it's out of that soil of humility and confession and repentance that comes trust and obedience. We trust and obey when we come humbly before God saying, God, I'm not who I should be. Lead me to where I need to be. Point me to where I need to go. And that's what leads to God acting. That's where we see God do amazing and miraculous things. The first place God does an amazing and miraculous thing is in your salvation. We trust and obey God. The first step of trusting and obey God is to humbly confess our need for a Savior, our need for Jesus. And guess how God acts? The first great act of God is to save you through Jesus and to experience that. You're saying, some of you are saying... I'm trying to understand God. I, I want to see God act. I want to believe in God. I'm not sure about God. And, you're, and you're, you're sort of looking for that evidence all around in your life. And I would say that you've never walked into the building. It's like you're walking around the building trying to wonder what's inside. If you want to get into the building where God is at, that front door is Jesus. Ignore all the other stuff if you can. It's not unimportant. There's a lot of other questions we have about Christianity and all these different things. Not unimportant, but what, at core issue, it always comes down to what the Christian message is always about is the front door is Jesus. You want God to act in your life. You want to see, know that God is with you. Humbly confess your sin and believe in Jesus and see what God does. That's how we come in. But once we're in, we continue to need humility and confession and repentance as the soul by which we trust and obey God. For us to see God act continues to require us to submit ourselves to God, to say, I'm not customizing God to my life. I'm letting God transform my life. That's why the Bible talks about being dead in your sin and now alive in Christ. Think about how stark that language is, about being a new creation, about being born again. All of it is about not you sort of having this life and now you're a Christian and now you sort of add a little bit of Christianity into the, to, to the mix. It's about a total change and that total change continues to happen continues to happen throughout your life. We continue to need God to work in those ways. And the result of that, 
as you confess and the humble, as you trust and obey God, is that you go in the direction God is. And God always gets to where he's going. God always gets to where he's going. So that, yes, we can expect things to happen. Yes, we can know God will act and work. Yes, we can know God is on our side. Because we're going where God is. And we're not making God come to where we are. God is not the accessory. He's the God of our lives. And that's what we need. It's what we need because you understand your life was perfectly created to have the God that we have be in that spot in your life. In many ways, what we're asking, what I'm, I'm bringing to you, before, bringing before you is there's this spot that needs to be there and you've put God in other parts in your life and God's like, no, it's the top spot. And your life was perfectly designed to have God fill that spot. Your life was perfectly designed to trust and obey a God who is loving and good and compassionate, who is wise and just. Your life was perfectly designed to have a life, to have a God in your life who will, yes, challenge you and confront you and convict you, but also transform you and lead you into his glory and his kingdom. Your life was designed for that. So God calls to you today. Put me in the right spot. Put me at the center. And watch me lead you in all the ways that you were meant to lead. Let's pray that we would hear God's voice and submit to him in all those ways. Lord, um, thank you for this time and for Jesus. Lord, I very simply pray, um, Lord, that we would indeed hear your call and stop deciding what we want is best. Uh, but instead, be willing, Lord, to hear what you say is best. Uh, Lord, Bring confession, Lord. For some people, it's confession for the very first time in their lives. May they confess and believe in Jesus. And Lord, in that confession, Lord, as we continue to confess always throughout our lives, and then trusting, obeying you, Lord, we know, Lord, what will happen. We repent, Lord, of the ways in which we continue to put you to the side and try to, to customize you to the things that we want and desire. Lord, you know what we want and desire. You know what's best for us to want and desire. Lord, uh, May we trust in that and rely on that. May you be our all in all, Lord God. Knowing, Lord, that the road of Jesus, Lord, leads us in all the ways everlasting. We thank you for these things. In Jesus' name, amen.